1 Kings chapter 19, we begin in verse 5. And as he, that is Elijah, lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruse of water at his head. And he did eat and drink and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, what doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 18. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. I want to call your attention in particular to verse 7 from this portion we just read. We read in that verse, And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, 
Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for thee. In our last study, we considered Elijah under the juniper tree. And we took note of how gracious the Lord was to his servant when his servant's faith and courage had completely collapsed because of the threat of Jezebel. Elijah was under such a heavy sense of failure that he wished in himself to die. Rather ironic to note that he never would die when his time in this world was up. We'll see this as we continue in our studies. He was taken to heaven in a fiery chariot. (coughs) He never would see death. As we pick up the discouraged prophet in the portion we've now read from 1 Kings 19, we find Elijah being strengthened by the Lord in an unusual and supernatural way in order to take a 40-day journey to the Mount of God. So we read, and I read again, verses 7 and 8, And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the Mount of God. One might wonder why Elijah would undertake such a journey as this. Why Horeb? Why go to that remote place? Surely the fear of Jezebel could not be the compelling factor at this point. He had already put plenty of space between himself and that wicked slayer of the Lord's prophets. And I think the answer to the question of why Mount Horeb can best be answered by looking at Elijah's answer to God when God says to him, What doest thou here, Elijah? It's almost as if the Lord himself wondered why he had chosen that destination. And in verse 10 we read, this is Elijah's response, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Underscore those words, the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. Mount Horeb was the mountain, you see, where the Lord had made a covenant with the nation of Israel. A number of Bible dictionaries tell us that Mount Horeb was a mountain range where the most prominent mountain in that range was Mount Sinai. And of course, you know, or I hope you know, the significance of Mount Sinai. Here was the place then that the Lord brought the Israelites after delivering them from slavery in Egypt. This is where the Ten Commandments were announced by God himself. This was also the mount where 
Moses was called up to receive instructions about the building of the tabernacle and the ritual that would constitute Old Testament worship. This was also the mount where Moses would return and would plead with the Lord to forgive the idolatry that the Israelites had committed when Aaron had crafted the golden calf. Some have suggested that the cave where we find Elijah was the very cave where Moses would have dwelt during his stay on the Mount of the Lord. As important as this mountain was in the history of the nation, A.W. Pink points out that we find no other instance in the Old Testament since the time of Moses when any Israelite visited this mountain. You don't find any of the prophets going to this mountain. You don't find King David going to this mountain. But now we find Elijah there. And it's important to note the frame of his mind when he was there. He was of the thinking that all was lost. What he said was true. The covenant had been forsaken. The altars had been torn down. It was also true that many of the prophets of the Lord had been slain by the wicked queen Jezebel and that she was out to take Elijah's life from him as well. Was the cause of the covenant truly lost? Would sin and idolatry and immorality went out in the end? These were the things that perplexed the prophet. Thankfully, the Lord had a message for his perplexed servant. And what that message amounted to was that the Lord was still building his church. His cause had not been lost. There was still a remnant that had not bowed the knee to Baal. There would be a successor appointed to follow Elijah when his time in this world was done. We'll have occasion to look at these things a little more closely as the Lord leads and enables in our studies of Elijah. What I want to direct your attention to today, however, is the journey itself that Elijah made to this mount. It was a 40-day and night journey that brought Elijah from under the juniper tree to the mount of God. It's a journey that the angel of the Lord described as too great for the prophet. Arise and eat, the angel says to him, because the journey is too great for thee. A.W. Pink makes a very good spiritual application of those words. Listen to what he writes. There is a practical lesson here for each of us, even for those whom grace hath preserved from backsliding. The journey is too great for thee. Not only life's journey as a whole, but each daily segment of it will make demands above and beyond our own unaided powers. The faith required, the courage demanded, 
the patience needed, the trials to be born, the enemies to be overcome, are too great for mere flesh and blood. I'm struck by that application that Arthur Pink draws from that text and the fact so struck by it that I want to take and explore those words and their spiritual application in a little more detail this morning. So this is what I want to call your attention to then, the greatness of the Christian's journey. The greatness of the Christian's journey. The journey is too great for you, the angel says to Elijah. Let's think first of all then on the destination of that journey. Certainly the greatness of that journey can be known by its destination. As I pointed out already in my introduction, Horeb, the Mount of God, corresponds to Mount Sinai. The two terms are used interchangeably in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. At least one of the sources I, I consulted suggests that this was also the place where Moses beheld the glory of the Lord as the Lord passed by and manifested his goodness and his glory to Moses. That's found in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where the Lord calls out his name, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. That manifestation of the glory of the Lord was arguably the climax of Moses' spiritual experience of the Lord. He had already gained a great deal from the Lord leading up to that experience. He had gained forgiveness for Israel for their golden calf idolatry. He had gained the promise that God would go with them into the promised land? You may recall, if you're familiar with the narrative, that God's initial word was, you go, but I won't go with you because you're a stiff-necked people, and that would not do for Moses. So among the things he's pleading for is that God would go with them, and at last his intercession does prevail, and God promises to go with them. And then having obtained so much in terms of forgiveness and in terms of the promise of the Lord's presence, Moses would go even further, and we find this recorded in Exodus 33 and verse 18, where Moses then prays, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. I know I focused on this passage in the past, and have pointed out that we find here a wonderful example of where our spiritual ambition should take us. Let's be as spiritually greedy as Moses was. Having obtained much from the Lord, he would gain even more. 
I beseech thee, show me thy glory. So there is a sense in which Mount Horeb, as a destination, can be considered to be the climax of a Christian spiritual destination. This is where Moses beheld the Lord's glory, and such a manifestation of that glory was what Elijah now needed because of the depths of his discouragement and despair. Such a manifestation of God does not come often, even for us as Christians. And if it is gained, it comes as a result of earnest prayer and fasting. Interesting to note, this is true of both Elijah and Moses, that they both went 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. Elijah on his way to the mount, and Moses while up in the mount. And please understand here that I'm not suggesting that we try to imitate Elijah or Moses in going for such a long period of time without food or water. Indeed, such a feat is impossible. And what we find in the case of Elijah and Moses is beyond doubt supernatural. What I am suggesting, however, by their example, is that our spiritual ambition should be the same as theirs. Our desire and our prayer should ever be, Lord, show me thy glory. And the pursuit of this ambition should be something that we're engaged in wholeheartedly, which can call for times of Fasting to accompany praying. He that cometh to God must believe that he is, Hebrews 11, 6, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Such manifestations of the glory of God gained by us as Christians will come when the Lord is earnestly sought. It does not come as a reward for half-hearted devotion and seeking. And such a manifestation of God is what's needed for our souls, especially during times of deep despair. I'm reminded of Job at the end of the book that bears his name. God appeared to Job in a manifestation of his glory. So many people that study the book of Job fail to see that the solution to Job's trial was not an explanation for why Job suffered. How many people read the book with that aim in mind? I want to know why. In fact, and I've referred to this in the past, in my early experience as a Christian, someone had said to me, if you want to know why Christians suffer, read the book of Job. I think as an early Christian, I had read Fox's book of martyrs, and so I knew that Christians suffered. And then someone said, if you want to know why, read the book of Job. And so I read it. It was the first book in the Bible that I read as a Christian. And when I was done, I said to myself, I still don't know why Christians suffer. There is no explanation given in the book of Job. Job never received any such explanation. But what he did receive was God himself. 
And that was all the explanation that was needed. So will that be the case with us? So the mount of God speaks to us of the fulfillment of our spiritual ambition. You might say it's our spiritual destination while we tread our paths in this world. Oh, show me more of my Savior, Lord. Pull back the veil of heaven. Give me a clearer and fuller view by faith through thy word, aided by thy spirit, that enables me to pursue, perceive the truth and the reality of the splendor and majesty and love and grace of my Redeemer. Our spiritual ambition. But the greatness of our journey as Christians also has an ultimate destination, not just a spiritual one. And that's the destination of heaven itself in the presence of Christ. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, Christ said to the thief that was crucified beside him. And the paradise Christ had in mind was heaven itself. For I am in a strait betwixt two, Paul writes in Philippians 1 and verse 23, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. This is how I pray, you know, for those that are on the bank of the river, so to speak, whose time may just about up to cross Jordan. Oh, Lord, give them such a vision of your glory that like the Apostle Paul, their first choice is to make the crossover and to go into heaven. When it comes to this ultimate journey, the words of our text certainly apply. The journey is too great for thee. We can't comprehend it. It cannot be expressed in words how grand and how glorious will be the blessings that await us when our journey ends and we're in heaven. We've been studying in our Sunday school class John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress. The entire story describes Christian's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. Eventually, we'll get to the chapter where Christian crosses Jordan and arrives on the banks of heaven. I know that we're tempted at times to treat heaven as if it were a myth. Perhaps it's with regard to heaven and the fact that heaven comes after death that Karl Marx viewed Christianity as the opium for the masses. Nothing that's true, simply a crutch that we lean on in order to console ourselves when a loved one passes away. So Marx thought. We should note, therefore, that Christ certainly didn't speak of it as a myth. Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, says in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And I love the emphasis Christ places on the truth of heaven, 
when he condescends to say, if it were not so, I would have told you. Christ was certainly not treating the truth of our ultimate destiny as a myth or a drug. Indeed, how often does Christ tell us that he came from heaven? And following the completion of his work in this world, he would return to heaven. He certainly is qualified to say whether or not it's true, whether or not it exists. We are then, dear Christians, on a journey, a journey to the celestial city, a journey that really is quite beyond us. The truth of the text applies to every true Christian that the journey is too great for thee. It's great because of its spiritual destination, and it's great because of its ultimate destination. Well, let's move on and think secondly on the power of this journey. The power of this journey. And note again the words of our text. We're back in 1 Kings 19, verses 7 and 8. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose and did eat and drink and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. I pointed out a minute ago that going on the strength of this meat and drink for forty days and forty nights was something that was supernatural. Think about it for a moment. Forty days, that's more than a month. Could you go that long without food and drink? It's about a month plus ten days. In the natural state of things, a person doesn't go 40 days with no food, and if he could manage somehow to go that long without food, he certainly couldn't go that long with no water. A quick Google search will show you medical studies that state you can only go days without water, depending on other factors. Eight to as many perhaps as 21 days without water, depending on your age and your fitness, etc. You can go longer without food, but not without water. So Elijah's journey was something in which he was sustained supernaturally. And what a powerful illustration it becomes to remind us that when we embarked on our journey to the celestial city, we were born again supernaturally. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, Christ said to Nicodemus, John 3 and verse 3. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 7, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 14, he writes, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The journey to the celestial city is truly too great for the natural man. 
The natural man, the man of this world, thinks his journey is easy. He thinks that he's basically good, and that his goodness will qualify him for heaven. He may condescend so low as to admit that he's slightly less than perfect. Most will say, I know I'm not perfect, but they say it in such a way as to suggest, I almost am, but not quite. He certainly doesn't see himself as a candidate for everlasting punishment. And because he's deceived himself into thinking that he's on the journey leading to heaven, the preaching of the cross becomes foolishness to him. For Christ sent me not to baptize, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Here, then, is a sure way for you to know with assurance whether or not you're headed to heaven and have been born from above. Is the preaching of the cross foolishness to you? Do you find the very notion offensive that you would stand in need of one dying in your place? Oh, the journey to heaven is truly too great for those who think that way, but to those who see their need of a Savior, who can actually glory in a crucified and risen Savior, though the journey be great, yet it is a journey that they, by the grace of God, have embarked on. And the same power that brings a Christian from spiritual death to spiritual life is the power that sustains them in this journey that is too great for them. We're seeing in our study of Pilgrim's Progress that there aren't many trials to be borne and spiritual battles to be fought and spiritual enemies to be conquered and temptations to be overcome. There's a hymn in our hymn book that asks the question, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? And then the hymn writer answers his own questions in the final stanza. Sure I must fight if I could reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. And this last phrase, supported by thy word, leads to a point I want to make before we leave this heading about the power needed for the journey. You'll notice from our text that the angel says to Elijah, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. It wouldn't do for Elijah to simply arise and go. No, he must arise and eat in order to equip himself 
for this great journey. And so likewise, must the Christian arise and eat, and not simply eat physically, though that is certainly necessary, but he must arise and eat the spiritual food of God's word. When the Lord taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread, I believe he had more in mind than the material bread that is eaten physically. We need the daily bread that comes from God's word. And we need the daily bread of prayer that comes through our communion with God. The journey, you see, is too great for us. We will face trials on any given day. There will be circumstances that will try our patience. There may be foes for us to face. There will be temptations that have to be overcome. All these circumstances make it necessary then for us to arise and eat. Arise and take in your daily bread of God's word. And spend time in communion with your Savior. Fortify yourself with God's grace. Ask him for the power of the Holy Spirit to be your portion for that day. And then though the journey be too great for thee, you will nevertheless be equipped for it, just as Elijah was equipped to make that 40-day journey to the Mount of God. So we've seen that the greatness of the journey can be perceived by its destination, and the greatness of the journey is seen by the needed power to embark on it and stay on it, Let's think finally and briefly on the patience required for the journey. The patience required. And this really takes us to that interrogation that takes place between God and Elijah. What doest thou here, Elijah? Well, I've been very jealous for the Lord as the children of Israel have forsaken the covenant, torn down the altar, slain the prophets, they're trying to slay me. I've been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. And basically the message that God has for Elijah through the earthquake and the rocks rending and the fire and then the still small voice, the message through that manifestation of God is that patience is needed for those that embark on this journey. James chapter 5, verses 7, and then 10 and 11. Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And like I say, this is the message conveyed to Job. Look at verse 11 now in 1 Kings 19. And he, God, said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, 
but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And I believe the point that's being made here is that the advancement of the Lord's cause does not require spectacular manifestations of things, such as what took place on Mount Carmel in the previous chapter, when the prophet called down fire from heaven. The Lord isn't dependent on such magnificent supernatural manifestations of himself in order to advance his cause the Lord really advances his cause in a much more subtle fashion. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 20, we read, And when he, Christ, was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Oh, we do love those times in history when there are unusual manifestations of the Lord's presence. We don't deny revival. Revival blessing has taken place, took place on the day of Pentecost. We have uh, in inspired scripture an account given to us of it. Certainly took place in the days of the Reformation, when the whole continent of Europe was in large measure sweeped into the kingdom of God, during a 10-year period when the Lord empowered his word, brought forth the truth as light again, and people understood the doctrine of justification by faith and that salvation is free and that our striving springs from gratitude and not to earn something from God. Oh, that was a marvelous period in history. And we know in our own nation, we have the accounts of the Great Awakening Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. We know that spectacular things took place when that message was preached and the Spirit moved and there was such a sense of the reality of hell that people were clinging to the pew in front of them for fear of dropping into hell right on the spot. We know these things are true. We know these things are real. But the message that God is giving to Elijah now is that none of them are essential for the advancement of Christ's cause. And in fact, the more common and ordinary way is through the use of the means of grace with the Holy Spirit bearing witness to the truth of his word and making the application to every waiting heart. Paul writes in Romans 8 and verse 24, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Elijah had to learn another lesson as well. I may come back to this one. It probably warrants any number of these things, I suppose, warrant a study of their own. But Elijah had to overcome the mentality that said, I alone am the only one left. 
the whole cause of God rests in me. And if I go, so does God's cause go. So the prophet thought, and he had to be corrected in that. No, there were 7,000 that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. There was a remnant that stood true. Our denomination, you know, is a separatist denomination, the Free Presbyterian Church. It really grew, you could say, out of the modernist, fundamentalist controversy, early 1900s, when you had seminaries, especially those in Germany, that were putting forth new and progressive ideas. Moses isn't the one that wrote uh, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, No, those were written by four or five different authors. The virgin birth really didn't take place. The blood atonement really isn't necessary. The supernatural is all myth and fable. And this was being propagated in the mainline denominations. And the result of that was the formation of many churches that broke away from the mainline denominations because they wanted nothing to do with that kind of thinking that was now permeating the mainline denominations. And so new churches were formed and Bible schools were formed The place where I went to school, Bob Jones University, that was born out of the modernist controversy. And the principles upon which separation are based are good and scriptural, and I'm happy to identify with them. But there's also a warning to be heeded. Oh, don't ever think that we're the only ones. Oh, the whole cause of Christ has been reduced to us. Boy, if that's the case, we really are in a sorry condition, aren't we? But it's not the case. God's cause and God's work is greater than that. And even though it might not be readily perceived with the carnal eye, yet God's cause is going forward. Don't expect CNN to tell you about it or the mainstream media. But reports do come through of what the Lord is doing in China and what the Lord is doing in Iran. Oh, I remember a report not terribly long ago in which Iranian leaders were actually coming out and confessing this is not simply Western propaganda that uh, people are subscribing to that are calling themselves Christians. This is bigger than that. This is more powerful than that. And souls have been and are being saved in places that we don't know about. And that thrill us when we learn of them. I'm afraid our tendency is to think that the United States is the center of everything. And uh, nothing can happen that's any good if it's not happening uh, with our knowledge and approval. Oh, God is so much larger than that. God is so much more gracious and powerful than that. His word does go forth, and it goes forth even in this sin-sick nation today. 
Peter tells us in the second epistle that we are to consider that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. The very fact that Christ has not yet returned means that his purpose in saving souls is ongoing. That means we still have things to do. We still have functions to perform. We'll look at that a little more this afternoon when we consider how we as Christians are to function as light and salt in a world such as ours. But for now, I leave this with you, that the journey is great, too great for us. We have been supernaturally born into it. We are supernaturally, by the power of the gospel, sustained in that journey. It is incumbent upon us, with regard to that journey, that we arise and eat, feed yourself on God's word, stay exposed to that word, keep your minds and hearts stayed upon Christ, for thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, the Lord tells us. And rejoice that the Lord's cause is indeed advancing, even if it may be in quiet ways. Pray then. Pray for your own soul. Lord, help me to have the spiritual sensitivity that enables me to hear that still small voice. When the Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth of God's word and brings that word home to my heart, Lord, help me to hear. The mark of judgment, you know, upon a nation, and this is something I fear and dread for my own soul, for my family, for my church, it is the mark of judgment when a people are given over to hardness of heart, which means you hear the word and it has no impact on you. Oh, God, spare us from that. In your wrath, remember mercy and grant to us the spiritual sensitivity that is needed to hear that still small voice. Well, let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now, bring our service to a close. We thank thee for the truth of what Christ said to his disciples. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank thee, Lord, that thou art building thy church by building up those that are a part of it and by adding to it such as should be saved. Lord, we pray that this work may continue. We thank you for the grace given to us, opening our blind eyes, subduing our rebellious hearts, enabling us to see we were on the broad road headed for destruction, and you pointed us to thy Son. And we thank thee that we find in him a glorious sight to behold, one dying in our place, that we might be saved. O Lord, may thy peace and thy joy be our portion, even in days that, to be sure, can be very discouraging. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.